he often spoke of nibbana as being the other shore, and that the Eightfold Path is the raft to the other shore. He also referred to it as being the vehicle for the Dharma, and the path leading to the deathless and leading to full understanding, which is really a big <laughs> scope, which includes you know, both samsara and nibbana. So um, one of the things to me about the Noble Eightfold Path, and just to refresh everybody's memories, <clears throat> that includes right view or right understanding, right intention, or sometimes called right thought, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindful no- mindfulness, and right concentration. And when we look at all of these different components of the Eightfold Path, it really takes us into the totality of which we can really apply this practice and these teachings. You know, it brings everything to the spiritual path. You know, the work we do in our lives, our relationships, what we say, what we, how we act. It brings sexual energy to the path. Um, it's just so all-encompassing. And, you know, I know for myself, I felt like, you know, from the time of even being a child, there was, it it didn't have the language that it now has, but just this sense of, you know, for me, when I was younger, it was more like, how do I bring truth to the center of my life? You know, it's like how, how now, you know, I might say it as, how do I bring the Dharma to the center of my life? How do I, you know, really embody the teachings? What do I look to? And here we find it, you know, just laid out. And, you know, it's not just laid out by some ordinary being. It's laid out by somebody who was fully realized. You know, so I really see the Buddha as being, you know, in in this instance of, you know, speaking of it as having right view, right understanding. And, you know, there he sits. It's like he's climbed to the top of this mountain and he sits surveying the landscape, the world. And then, you know, he sees these beings struggling. And through, you know, his own experience and through the perspective that he has sitting on the mountaintop, he can, you know, point to what's helpful to pay attention to. What's useful? What are the different aspects that we can really work with in our lives so that we too can awaken? And so, you know, there's just great joy in the fact that there is this path, you know, and, you know, the word path itself implies that, you know, it's not just one person who's walked this path. It's, you know, said to be an ancient path, well-trodden. Many people have walked this path. And, you know, we find that through that, you know, there was the Buddha, there was the disciples that awakened in his time, there's been the beings who've awakened since then, there's been all of the commentaries that come from that. And there's just this whole wealth of teachings to draw from. You know, that can be a great support. And yes, it can't just stay on the level of intellectual. We have to do the work. We have to look within our own hearts and minds. But there is just, you know, many teachings that point towards what's helpful, 
what's valuable on this journey. And so, you know, over the course of these next few weeks, to really be taking a look at some of the things the Buddha was pointing to in laying out what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path begins with wisdom. It also culminates with wisdom. The wisdom aspects of the path being right view and right intention. Sometimes, you know, it's perplexing as to why we begin with right view. But it's really that, you know, if we don't have any perspective, we don't have any sense of direction, no, there, there's really nothing, no direction to go, no inkling, no, you know, that, that there's got to be some flicker of faith that, or not faith, of wisdom. It does come through faith too, but of wisdom that comes through. And, you know, really one of the initial levels of wisdom we may have in our lives is to see that all beings suffer, that, you know, there is suffering in the world. And what happens from the scene of that is that when this deepens and is understood, we really see into the nature of life. And this wisdom element culminates with the deep experiential understanding of the Four Noble Truths. We really come to understand the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the way leading to the cessation of suffering and the cessation of suffering. We really come to know that for ourselves. And right intention is going to you know, really help us to have that motivation, that inclination to keep turning the mind towards deepening understanding. As I venture into the Noble Eightfold Path, I'm going to tonight move into what really lays the foundation. Um, really, the Eightfold Path can be broken down into three trainings the training of wisdom, where it is right view, right right intention. It also is uh, sila, is the next, the f- real foundation that I'll speak about tonight. And this is based upon right speech, right action, right livelihood. And that foundation, you know, really gives... Uh, the grounds for training the mind, which we do through right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So all, all of these different aspects of the Eightfold Path, you know, that they're spoken of individually, and yet they really all work together. They support each other. They all need to be um, have right view and right intention as the forerunner. Otherwise, you know, it's just more confusion. But if it's based upon right view and right intention, then it, this is what will 
lead to liberation. But tonight, beginning with Sila, I wanted to begin here because it is such a foundation. You know, that we probably all know that if we are doing unskillful, unwholesome things in our life and we come to practice, that it replays. We feel remorse. We can get caught in great waves of guilt. The mind is really agitated. Um, and, you know, that, that the training of the mind is then very, very difficult. You know, we're just so preoccupied with what we may have done in our lives. And so, and certainly for myself, you know, when I first came to practice, someone had just begun with the training in sila, you know, I probably would have left. You know, that, 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 that I really came in through the training of the mind, through effort, mindfulness, concentration, because my belief was that would lead to liberation. But through the deepening of the practice, it's just shown me so clearly how important the foundation is. And that, you know, if we're really trying to uh, train the mind on an unstable foundation, you know, it's just going to constantly be caving in, falling. There's no, there's no ground to have roots to grow in. You know, it, it's just... There's nothing, no sense of nourishment that's there, no stability. The the um, turning towards the training of sila is really a place that we can look on a very tangible level into cause and effect, because when we explore right speech, right action, right livelihood, this is really a place where we see that you know, actions have consequences. The seeds that we sow will bear fruit. We come to see that through what we do and say in our lives when we pay attention. So it's really a place that we strengthen wisdom through paying attention to. If we're living a life based in sila, based in ethical conduct, it's really where we give value to living a life of non-harming. When, you know, I first heard about sila, and, and just to say that sila... Um, this training in sila really relates strongly to the five precepts that we have right speech, which you know is in our five precepts, five training guidelines that the Buddha gave, and the Buddha also you know gave it so much importance. He gave it its own limb in the eightfold path, and you know we'll come, we'll speak more about that. So that being one of the precepts. And then right action includes not killing. It includes not taking that which has not been offered and uh, includes sexual misconduct. 
And the use of intoxicants is not directly said, but it is implied that you know if we're in getting intoxicated and becoming heedless, then we cannot uphold our sila, that we be we be, we fail fail to really honor that living of a life of non-harming. <clears throat> but it also this aspect of sila expands to include right livelihood. And so this, you know, is just, again, bringing in another aspect of our lives to the path, to the path of awakening. I think something that's important in speaking about these is that they don't lead us into rigidity, which, you know, for myself, if, when I first heard, you know, the precepts, it was like, if I held them in a space of black and white, it could lead to a lot of tension in the mind. If I held them from a place of inquiry, investigation, it opened up a really rich way of living where there was a sense of really looking to one's intentions, one's motivation, and really just seeing, is it leading towards non-harming? Is it leading towards creating greater harmony in the world? Is it based on loving kindness and compassion? And, you know, when, when we really live with loving kindness and compassion in our hearts, these these precepts really naturally are followed because they are so based in non-harming. And so, you know, that, that makes it a very kind of easeful way to help uproot the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. Very important link between, you know, really living this life of non-harming and that cultivation of loving kindness, compassion, which really helps to erode habituated mind states of greed, hatred, and delusion. Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, you know, a Western Theravadan monk, has a really wonderful, quite simple. You know, it's it's not a huge book, but it's a really pithy book on the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, if you've never read it, you know, you know, not on retreat. I'm not recommending that you sit down and read it, but at some point in your lives, you know, it can be a very helpful book to really just help bring to life the Eightfold Path. But in the the book, he speaks about um, how. You know, through our sila, we help to strengthen harmony, both inner and outer. And he speaks about about four kinds of harmony that can be strengthened. The first of that being social harmony. That when we live really ethically, that people feel like they can trust us. That that brings a greater sense of ease social bonding that there becomes a level of psychological harmony where we're not tormented 
by guilt, regret, worry. There's a karmic level to the harmony where in our lives we're planting wholesome seeds. You know, that's what ethical conduct does. It really, you know, plants seeds that are going to lead to uh, fruits that are wholesome, that are helpful, that are skillful. And, you know, many of us in our lives may have done really unwholesome things, you know, where we, we did things that were going to perpetuate suffering down the track. You know, at some point, those fruits will, would ripen and come back to us in a way that created pain, suffering. So by paying attention, living ethically, it really helps us to plant the wholesome seeds. And it, he, he said the fourth level of harmony that living ethically helps is that of com- contemplative harmony. And this is, you know, this level where it really helps the mind to be happy, joyful. And, the, you know, it's the happy, joyful mind can easily collect itself, is contented. This is the mind that will really benefit, um, bring great benefit as we meditate. So moving into the different components of sila, the first being that of right speech. I'm sure we're all familiar with the power of speech and how, you know, through our words we can cause so much pain really quickly. We can cause division. We can strengthen hatred. We can cause harm to others. Sitting here on retreat, we experience how our words reverberate. You know, things we've said in the past, how it bounces around in our minds, comes back to us. Even years later, we might remember something we've said that's been really unskillful. You know, I have seen for myself and I've heard other yogis say that, you know, you remember some memory from the past and you just really want to ask for forgiveness because you realize that there was a strong impact from that. The Buddha talked about there being four kinds of speech that were harmful. He said false speech, slanderous, harsh, or idle chatter. Paul's speech is probably quite easy to see, the harm that can come from that, how, you know, when we speak lies, untruths, that it can create confusion, you know, that someone may, we may be speaking to and lying to, they may have had an inkling of the truth and then they hear this lie and they don't know what to trust anymore. So they move into confusion. They may have a sense that they can't trust us. 
We cannot be relied upon to speak the truth. We can create confusion for ourselves. I don't know if you've ever seen it in your own mind, but it's like you tell a lie. Once you tell that lie, it can become easier and easier to repeat that lie. And we can actually forget that it is a lie. And it just leads to greater confusion. The Buddha once said, one who speaks the truth is devoted to the truth, is reliable, worthy of confidence, not a deceiver of people. Really helpful to pay attention to whatever ways we may have in our lives of speaking untruths. And if we catch it, to really to look and see what's motivating you know, is there a sense that we need to lie from a place of uh, greed where we want to get something of material benefit for ourselves or someone close to us, so we lie in order to get it? Are we lying in order to make ourselves look better, to try and gain respect? Um, just looking to see what's underlying it. Or is it based in hatred? Are we lying to cause harm, to hurt somebody else? Or is it from the place of delusion? You know, we might be compulsively lying. You know, just little lies, but we compulsively tell them. Or we might have a tendency to exaggerate or to tell jokes that are lies. To really watch the effect in the mind when we speak something that is not true. This is where our practice you know, just sitting moment by moment with our experience helps us to learn to be honest with ourselves, learn to be truthful. This can follow through into our speech. Feeling the inner resonance that comes as we speak the truth. The second form of unskillful speech is that of slanderous speech. Slanderous speech causes enmity and division. The Burmese have a quite wonderful phrase that describes this. It's the speech that crushes the loving kindness between two people. That kind of really hit me when I heard it. Sometimes, you know, if we pay attention to this, what hap- what's happening in the mind? You know, it can be aversion is present, and, we, you know, we're just speaking out of that place of aversion. You know, there may be a sense of wanting to bring people down. And, you know, it's like, why? What? What's to be gained? What's the motive here? 
really looking to see what's happening in the mind. You know, because so much of, of harmful speech is, is just based on our not being able to touch an inner mind state and just acting out of that reactivity. Seeing if in, we can instead speak in a way that promotes friendship, harmony. That others will feel free to share with us, to tell us things, because they aren't in fear that we're then going to turn around and use it against them. The third kind of speech to be avoided is that of harsh, harsh speech where we speak from a place of anger, agitation, where we may be scolding someone, uh, reproving them, but from a, not from a place of compassion, but you know, from that, that place of aversion, making somebody wrong, feel little, feel diminished. And, you know, if we really look to what that feels like in our own experience, we know how painful that is. And that can help us, you know, to, to watch that our, our speech is not harsh, but it is instead gentle, kind, spoken in a way that can be heard. The fourth kind of speech to be avoided is that of idle chatter. You know, and this is speech that really keeps us on the surface, keeps us from touching into the deeper issues of our lives. You know, idle chatter, in one sense, it could be the chatter we have with other people, you know, which can just lead us into a way of life where we're trying to fill spaces. You know, so we end up, you know, going to the TV, the radio, a book, just, you know, living on that level, that superficial level of distraction. You know, sitting on retreat here, you know, there can be times where there's a chatter in the mind and we're, we're just not really paying attention to it. And there's just little chat, 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 chat. You know, in one retreat I named myself Chatterbox. <laughs> um, and this is actually a place, again, where the, the silent practice, although, you know, we're not working with so much with spoken word here, but learning to pay attention to thoughts is really helpful because those thoughts move into speech in other situations. And so if we really are learning to see, not, give, not get endlessly lost in this chat, 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 chat of the mind, but really just to see these thoughts in their nature and you know, to be able to discern whether a thought acted upon is skillful or unskillful. It's really helpful training. The Buddha said there was five marks for well-spoken words. These are words that are timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken from the mind of loving-kindness. I think these are really good reminders. I'm going to say them again because you know I've fallen back to them many times in my own life. Speaking words that are timely, 
Now, sometimes it isn't at the right time to be offering our greatest wisdom. You know, that for what a person just may not be in a space where they can hear it. It's going to lead to anger, aversion. You know, so really checking, is this timely? Is it true? You know, is what we're about to say based in truth? Is it gentle? You know, noticing if there's a harshness to what we want to say if it's fueled by anger and aversion, or whether it's gentle, whether there's a purpose in speaking this, or if it's really the mind just spinning out in just this idle chatter. Is there some benefit to the speaking of this? Is it going to engender the harmony that I spoke of? And is it spoken with the mind of loving kindness? We could devote much of our lives to working with right speech. Just a reminder that one of the places that you may, on on this retreat anyways, work with right speech is in the weekly group, the weekly discussion group that happens. That this can be a place where one works with the momentum of practice that we have happening in, you know, again, a simplified environment. We're really just talking about Dharma, but yet probably there'll be moments within it where one might start to lapse into unskillful speech. So this can be a really helpful time to work actively with um, this aspect of the Eightfold Path on retreat. So the next aspect being that of right action. And so this does include, you know, not not killing or taking life of sentient beings, Um, not stealing, taking that which is not freely offered, and that of sexual misconduct. For the first aspect of this, the not killing living beings not harming living beings. This really helps us to live a life where we have a reverence for all life. Where you know we expand our world to not just include not harming ourselves, those who are dear to us, living or human beings but you know to all forms of life and for me this has certainly been a growthful place in my own journey that you know i was born into a family that seemed to have a lot of fear around insects and could you know just had this sense that when they appeared they should be annihilated gotten rid of killed and that was kind of like a conditioning that i had 
And it really wasn't, even though I had done years of meditation, it wasn't till um, you know, I started practicing with the monks, I started you know, reciting the precepts, that this aspect of the teachings really came alive for me. And then, you know, it it really became an exploration to explore that mind of aversion, that mind of get rid of, annihilate. Um, It it was especially strong for me on one trip I took to Burma, where I had temporarily ordained as a nun. And then, you know, I was living in a place, many places in the world, but uh, where there was just an abundance of insect life. And I also seem to have, a, I don't know, type of blood, a scent, whatever, that insects have adored. <laughs> this has been throughout my life. And so, you know, there I was in an area where there was, you know, many kinds of insects. There was mosquitoes. There was little red spiders that liked to bite. There was bed bugs. There, there was ants that would bite. Um, just, I can't remember how many different kinds of bugs I actually counted that liked to bite. And there I was, temporarily a nun, which to me just brought greater integrity to the living of the precepts. You know, just feeling like I, I really wanted to uphold them as best I could. And being very challenged because there was no refuge. You know, it wasn't like I could sit under a mosquito net um, and be free from all the bugs because there was quite likely to be, you know, the bed bugs weren't just in the bed, but they were in furniture. Um, you know, they were in the mats. You know, so wherever I went, there was these bugs. And, you know, oh, wow. I was challenged. I was really, really challenged. You know, because at one point my bottom had so many bites on it and they got swollen and I really couldn't sit down. You know, it was just really painful (laughs) when I think of it. And then, you know, waking up in the night to feeling some... (laughs) And, you know, my immediate response was like... But then, you know, there'd be the catching of it. Okay, you know... being with it, being with the aversion. But I really started to see over time there there came a kindness, a care, a respect for these little creatures that were, you know, biting me. And, you know, in bed at night I would collect in a little jar bugs throughout the night. In the morning I would take them somewhere and let them go. And you know, it took time, it wasn't immediate, but I did begin to see how just through awareness both of the violence in my own mind and through really seeing these as living beings, that care started to come in, that sense of interconnectedness. You know, I, I didn't ever reach the point where I could freely let everyone bite me, but <laughs> I could be a little bit more responsible in how I related. It also helped me to bring greater awareness to how I lived so that, you know, I I didn't have food hanging around that was going to attract bugs. You know, that, that I wore insect repellent so, you know, that that would help to, you know, keep the, keep being tempted by wanting to annihilate. But just bringing care into how I lived 
that it, be, it became more respectful on many levels. <clears throat> I think there's something that's interesting to know. When the Buddha spoke about uh, killing, he spoke about it very specifically. And he said that all of these factors needed to be there. That one must be a being, and you must know that there is a being that you're seeking to kill, and that you have intention to kill through a method or plan, and that you kill according to that plan. So, you know, in our lives, probably some of us have unintentionally caused harm, have unintentionally killed. And this is not actually a breaking of the precept. It doesn't mean that we therefore should just remain ignorant and then if we happen to kill things, it won't matter. You know, that's not what it's about. But it's really that it points back to the necessity to notice intentions and to really live with a reverence for life, all life. This precept can certainly take us into ethical dilemmas in our life where, you know, I mean, as human beings, when we breathe in, there is organisms that will die as a consequence. You know, that, that if we are sick and take antibiotics, it will kill, you know, different forms of life. Um, if we have a house that's being eaten away by termites, you know, that 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 can you know bring up ethical dilemma and what this precept or you know really honoring of this right action takes us into is really learning to live consciously to take care and to see how we can base our actions upon a care upon the wisdom of the interdependence of life. The second aspect of right action is not taking that which has been freely offered, not stealing. It can be, you know, um, whether... The stealing happens through secrecy, through fraudulence, snatching, deceit. This precept or training takes us to really learning to treat with respect material goods and that we don't live with a sense of entitlement It helps us to erode this sense of being the center of the universe. And I want, I need, give me, it's mine, I'm entitled to. But instead, helps us to look to see. I think, you know, a a lot of around the fraudulence, um, deception, secrecy, that can pertain to our actions in the business world. You know, that there can be levels where uh, it may not be so wholesome, the, business, the way we're conducting our business. 
And that, you know, this really helps to remind us to keep ourselves honest. Um, you know, and then there's the level two where it's just we may see something and have a sense of entitlement. I want that. We do it in small ways in life. You know, some, you know, it may not be that we're the compulsive shoplifter, but we may have other ways. You know, I saw it in the midst of a retreat that I was sitting. Um, I was staying up through the night, and I was sitting. It was about midnight, and my bottom was getting really sore. And then this woman who sat in a chair near me had on her seat uh, a piece of foam about three inches thick. And, you know, around midnight, I kept looking at it, and, mm, oh, that looks good, eyeing it. And then by 3 o'clock in the morning, when, you know, nobody else was in the hall, nobody was around, it was really quiet, I thought, well, you know, it's not going to cause any harm if I just borrow it for this one city. And so I did. I took it. Sure enough, I'm sitting there, and footsteps come into the hall. They come right up to the row I'm sitting in, and they stop. And then, this was happened over at the retreat center. They kept walking on past, and you know, I have a bit of a relief. They went to the back of the hall where a lot of different pieces of foam and cushions were stored. And I could hear someone shuffling through these. And the way they were shuffling through them, I could feel their distress. And so, I thought, what if it is this woman? And so I looked. And sure enough, it was. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? (laughs) And I thought, well, okay, I took it. I've got to fess up. So I picked up the piece of foam. I went to the back of the hall. I tapped on her shoulder. And you know, you're in the hall at 3 o'clock in the morning. One other person, someone taps on your shoulder. That alone, what's that going to (laughs) do? Poor woman. (laughs) She jumps, but she turns around. I show her the foam. And she just gets this delighted look on her face. You know, I just, I, I think, I don't know if I've said anything, but, you know, just kind of bowed and went back to my seat. It was a total learning on the effect of these small actions. That tormented me. And, you know, it was a two-month retreat. I don't know what point the retreat it was in, but, you know, at the end of the retreat, I couldn't wait to seek this woman out and really formally apologize. You know, it, it just weighed upon me. Um, so it was just the scene of that. You know, and... It's interesting to look at these little moments where, you know, maybe it's a cookie we take that hasn't been offered. It's simple little things. But just look at what's happening in the mind there. You know, just, it's not quite straight. You know, that's what I saw in many of these moments. It's just a little squirming to the left. You know, it's based in deceit. And it just doesn't, support that nobility of heart. We can also extend this into, you know, not taking more than we need. We live in a planet with limited resources. If everybody goes for what they want, well, we know what happens. We're living it. It cause and effect. It's time. We need to pay attention to this one. It's really time. You know, and if we just 
keep going for what we need. We're planting the seeds of greed. But if we really let what we have be enough, planting the seeds of contentment, you know, and this, again, helps the mind to be happy, joyful, concentration to deepen, and this is where insight, wisdom unfolds. It's all so related. Just these little actions that we can do. Paying attention. And then for right action, the last part being that of sexual misconduct. Sexual energy. It's how we got here. We begin to experience it at a young age in our lives. It's confusing right there. (laughs) Remember back to the first hormones that started going through our systems? If we aren't aware of this energy, we can cause so much harm, so much pain. We see it when we look around the world. And, you know, what's happened through the unskillful use of sexual energy? And here we have the Buddha bringing it to the path, a part of the training that helps to liberate the mind. That we really bring this into the arena of respect, care, kindness. That we don't use it in a way that's going to cause harm to ourselves, cause harm to others. We don't use our sexual energy in ways that's going to cause fear for other people, shame, regret or where they're going to be uncertain. It's a huge training. I remember earlier in my life when you know I would experience strong sexual energy and there would be somebody there, you know, there would be a sense that this was my soulmate. And, you know, then, you know, through practice, seeing that this is just an energy that arises due to causes and conditions, and it's impermanent in its nature. And I don't have to, you know, run my whole life according to when it's strong. (laughs) And, you know, we also begin to see just the, the temporary happiness that comes from, you know, acting out of it, you know, and begin to see that that you know it can be a way of just strengthening the force of desire in that you know we're really in our practice learning to cultivate the mind of non-greed and so you know this is a strong arena in which we can learn to be with desire you know it's a natural energy we don't need to make ourselves wrong in its arising that's not what it's about but that we don't cause it to cause, don't use it to cause further harm in our lives. On retreat, the great blessing of, you know, letting go of acting out on the sexual energy, which just helps us to see it, to know it, to be with it, so that we can, you know, taste on retreat not being run by it, not being at the mercy of, but being able to see it in its nature.
the next component of sila being that of right livelihood. Looking in our lives at how we gain wealth, that this too is done in a way of care and respect. That it's done in a way that engenders harmony, peacefulness. It's not done through coercion, violence, trickery, deceit. The Buddha spoke quite specifically about um, wrong livelihood by uh, means of livelihood that promoted weapons, uh, the killing of living beings, slaughterhouses, prostitution, uh, poisons, and intoxicants. Some of those may not feel so directly connected to our lives. Um, Bhante Gunaratana, uh, many of you maybe know him. He comes to IMS regularly. He also has a center down in uh, Virginia. He, gave, he gives three guidelines to looking to what is right livelihood. Uh, livelihood that promotes harmony amongst sentient beings, livelihood that does not break any of the precepts, and livelihood that keeps the mind from being agitated, that helps us in our spiritual journey. And it's quite likely that having said that, we all go, whoop, better change my job. (laughs) But it's more about the attitude with which we bring to what we do. And that, you know, there can be, we may work in places that, you know, are quite wholesome. They're trying to support other beings in some way and yet may be very stressful to ourselves. There could be people in the workplace that, you know, don't speak wisely. Um, and some of us may have the capacity to be in a, in a you know, more toxic environment and really be able in our own mind to stay steady, to be able to, you know, be challenged and rise up to that challenge and not be overwhelmed by it and may be able to work in more toxic situations. But some of us may get overwhelmed there and just find that too much and may need to change our workplace to be more supportive. So, you know, it's really having to look at our own tendencies, our, you know, whether what needs support in our minds to help us be acquiring wealth or supporting ourselves in a way that is not contrary to our spiritual journey. And it's for each of us to really take a look and to see. So this aspect of sila right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's really where we're cultivating virtue. 
you know, the, which is actions that support are actions that are an embodiment of the purity of heart and mind. You know, it, and it's said in the Buddha's teachings that the noble one, the, they would just naturally follow the precepts because it's based in non-harming. It's based in loving kindness. It's based in compassion. For many of us, it's a training because we have habits of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so using these guidelines as a support. And, you know, I know for myself that, you know, doing things like reciting the precepts, you know, even to myself, it's a reminder, really reflecting on my actions and the consequences of them. And that can be both unwholesome actions. You know, it's important to see, like, if we've broken a precept, to reflect on it, to feel the pain, but it's not to sit there engulfed in guilt. No, it's to feel that pain so we can be re-inspired, recommit. And then it becomes powerful. We learn from our mistakes. Also reflecting on wholesome actions, moments where we did act from loving kindness, from compassion, you know, moments, these points towards there is moments in our life where wisdom is what's present. And that can help to inspire, gladden, lift the mind. We find that the strengthening of sila, of ethical conduct, really deepens joy brings a great gladness of mind, gladness to the mind. These moments where we acted from a place of goodwill, generosity, you know, the, we, we just feel the upliftment that comes from that. You know, not a sense of pride, conceit, oh, look what I did, but it's like, ah, there's a natural lifting of the heart that happens there. looking at how we can refine, look more closely, not as a means of getting perfect, but just as a means of bringing greater care, integrity to how we live. It's strengthened by being clear about what our motivation is, why we're doing this. You know, this again relates back to right view, the possibility of awakening, the possibility of living, embodying the nobility of heart and mind, and then needing energy, resolve to carry through. So sila is 
the foundation for the training of the mind. The training of the mind which leads to a deepening of wisdom. The beginning of the training in the Eightfold Path. While we're on retreat, we find that there is a protection. But it is the place where we do really gain insight into cause and effect, having seen the implications, effect, living with that, of, of consequences of what we have done and said in our lives. To notice if we hold ethical conduct in a tight, rigid, harsh way, or whether we hold it in the place of joy, gladness, non-harming. A way in which we bring the totality of our lives to the path. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the joy of the virtuous mind. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. <clears throat> 